Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. All right, let's welcome to the show uh, retired General Stanley McChrystal, uh, CEO of the McChrystal Group, an outstanding leader of the military for over four decades of service, uh, through four decades of service, not 40 years, but through four decades from uh, 1976 until about 2010-ish. Then he started the McChrystal Group in 2011. He's done great things with them and, of course, for those he served with the military. Thanks for coming on and welcome to the show, Stanley McChrystal. Well, Rich, thanks for having me. And please call me Stan. We're both veterans. Yes, we're both sir. getting older. <laughs> Just we're a little wiser now, I guess. I hope. <laughs> I hope we learned some lessons along the way. So, Stan, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Stuff I didn't throw in there about as far as far back as you want to go to where we are now. Sure. I I came up in an army family. My father was a soldier, and my father's father was a soldier. I have four brothers. They were all soldiers. My sister married a soldier. And then when I got married, after I got out of West Point, my, I married the daughter of a career soldier, a tanker, <laughs> and her brothers were all soldiers. So it was all an army family. It was just sort of you get on the boat and you go down the current. And uh, it was great, but, you know, it was that experience. That's awesome. Uh, I only had like my dad was in the army. My grandfather was in World War II in the army. My brother joined the Navy for some reason. And uh, <laughs> I always wanted to be in the army. And that's where I wound up. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. And, and it worked out very well, but I never considered anything else. I mean, when I was young, I wanted to be my dad because yeah. he was my hero. Till the day he died, he was. And then I went to West Point at 17. You know, you're too young to really know what you want to do. So to kind of do that. And I came out in 76 when the army was struggling quite a bit after Vietnam still. And so I entered an army that wasn't what I hoped it'd be, but it got better and better through all the years because it sort of repaired itself as, as we got further from Vietnam. And so it was a great experience. I, when people ask me about, you know, how did you like your, your military experience? I had a good time. And there were things I didn't like. There were days when you look at yourself in the mirror and say, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, but, but there were a lot more days when you just liked it and you liked being around soldiers of every rank 
You like being one. You like calling yourself a soldier. I thought that was important to me. And so it felt like being on a team, almost like being back in high school. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And yeah, and you had that camaraderie and, and the, the same thing in the locker room in high school you had within your platoon, your your company, you had that same kind of uh, brouhaha, I guess I want to call it without saying the words, a lot of things happen in those platoons. But you got the same uh, give and take with your with your teams in there and, and you learn you learn your family, your new family while you're in uniform. So you had an amazing career in uniform. You had the chance to lead soldiers at every level from platoon all the way up to commanding all of troops in Afghanistan. What are some things you learned along that journey that you still use today? Yeah, I think mostly it's it's people. You know, I, I know your story. You're no stranger to Ramadi and Fallujah. And you talk to people sometimes about how terrible something was. But when I talk to people who were there at the same time, I said, would you go back? And they usually go in a heartbeat. Yes. And I said, why would you do that? Because I feel the same way. But it's not because it was a good time that the war was a great thing, but you were with people you trusted. You felt like you were doing something important for them. And so it's that sense that at the end of the day, it's all about people. And I got out of the service in 2010 and I spent my whole life in uniform or as a child of a soldier. And so to me, the civilian world was a completely unknown entity. And I sort of waltz out in there with no idea what's there not much prep and no plan. And what I found was, it's all about people. It's the same darn thing. You know, you, it's how you work with people, how you take care of people, the relationships that you build and the good organizations that I see now and hopefully that we've built uh, here in my firm, it's about people. And so you just keep reminding yourself that. Definitely, to human capital, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand the investment that human capital can pay how much dividends those pay in the long run other than just investing in a stock. You're investing in a human that actually has something to give back to you. Yeah, you know, we used to talk about the first Gulf War. You know, Saddam Hussein had his army and we beat it. And a lot of people said we had this superior technology, which was true. But I've also told people we could have switched equipment two weeks before the operation and we just still had no trouble because the, the strength of our people at that point and the culture was really good. And I think that's true in, in most instances. Definitely was, and uh, I agree with you there. It, it didn't matter what, what tool we had uh, in the soldier's hand, we still would have won that battle because of the men and women that were on the ground at that time. Absolutely. So as you were a young uh, leader in the military, I'm sure uh, you had an NCO that would tell you, sir, what are you thinking? Why would you do that? And So what if any mistakes did you make early on as a young leader in the military that shaped the way you led the rest of your career and how you operate now in the McChrystal Group. It's funny, I, I probably made them all, <laughs> but I can describe a couple. I had my first platoon sergeant was a, not an old guy, but he was older than me. And he was not very charismatic. And I took this platoon and there were a bunch of people in the platoon that didn't like him. And those people were kind of clever people and whatnot. And to a certain degree, what I did was I, I fell prey to trying to be popular with them as opposed to really being loyal to my uncharismatic platoon sergeant. And what happened is over a series of months, he failed and he failed not because he's a bad guy, but he failed, I think, 
in part because I didn't support him well enough. And, you know, for the rest of my career, I realized that you're going to be in those cases where people try to, to create fissures between leaders in an organization. Um, and you can fall prey to trying to be accepted by one group and ultimately do something that's, that's not as good. And then another thing is I fell prey to initially uh, stereotypes. You know, got to the 82nd Airborne Division and, and my idea of a paratrooper was sort of this stereotypical barrel chested guy. And we had this supply sergeant in my company named uh, Davis, Sergeant Davis, Sergeant First Class Davis. And he was overweight and he was always sweaty and he smelled like vodka because he drank a lot down in the supply room. And he, low, he wore low quarter shoes with his combat uniform because he had smashed his leg on a parachute operation a few years before, and he could never jump again, could barely walk. I mean, he walked with this painful looking limp. And so I got there and I stereotyped him as sort of a worthless character, you know, drank and lazy and all that. And what I realized was that was completely wrong. In fact, he brought me down to the supply room after I'd been there, I don't know, six months or so. And he said, Lieutenant Mack, come down here. And I came down there and he showed me how he had gotten me to sign a platoon hand receipt, a record of all the equipment that I was responsible for. And I'd signed it incorrectly. And I'd signed it in a, uh, in a column that was not yet filled out. So in fact, he could have gone and filled out whatever amounts he wanted and held me responsible. He said, now I've been holding on to this to decide whether you're a good guy. And I've decided you are. So look, I'm gonna teach you this and I'm gonna fix it and boom. And I learned over time that this was the most loyal guy in that unit. And he'd been this hard charging paratrooper before he'd smashed his leg. And yet he still took charge of troops. And yet the senior leadership in the battalion didn't treat him well. Um, in his last six weeks in the army, he asked if he could go to heating and air conditioning school. One of these transition courses, six weeks after more than 20 years. And the leadership said, no, we have an inspector general uh, in inspection coming up. Well, you know, which those things come and go, they don't really matter. And yet we treated this guy, the, the organization treated this guy as though he didn't matter. And, and I walked away with that understanding as one, things aren't always as they look. And two, at the end of the day, What's really important is what's really important and figure that out. That's outstanding. That's two great pieces right there. I really like the supply, the supply analogy and the fact that he held that uh, 2062 for so long, waiting to see if you were a good guy where you had a, a preconceived notion of him. He also was trying to figure you out at the same time. And, and he could have been, if he was a bad guy, he could have really got you really good with that. And like you said, he taught you a lesson that you actually were able to carry throughout the rest of your time as you were a commander signing more hand receipts because you signed for millions and millions of dollars as your career went on, I'm sure. And you probably always paid attention to that column as you went forward. That's right. And paid attention to the quality of people you work with. Who can Definitely. you trust? <laughs> so you, when you got out, you, you like me, I, I didn't know what to do with my hands when I hung up my uniform uh, in uh, 2015. Uh, you started the McChrystal Group not long after you got out. What led you to that eye-opening moment to start the McChrystal Group? Yeah, I had no plan to that when I was in service, but a friend of mine who had, was serving with me asked if I'd start a company. And I said, well, sure, what would we do? We had no idea what we would do. And 
my rationale for wanting to do it was to be part of a team. And rather than go join some big defense company or something as a retired officer, I wanted to form a team that, that I was happy to go to work with it every morning, that I felt good about, that I could have some impact on the culture that they have. And that's what we've done. It's, uh, it's the ability to go get people that you admire to work with, help shape young people, give them an opportunity they might not otherwise have, and do something good in the marketplace. And if you do all those things tolerably well, you'll do well enough in business. Business is not magic. I thought it was this black box that only <laughs> geniuses out of business school could do, but that's not true. It's, it's basically, you do something and do it well, and you're trustworthy, you're probably gonna succeed. Definitely, that's a, definitely a, a great way to look at it. I first started in college, Business was my degree because that's what everyone was studying at the time. Uh, business was the way to go is what I was always taught, but I didn't like it. I, it was boring to me. I really, I don't think I really wanted to be in college and that, that was the problem. I just wanted to be in the army and that was my whole goal was to be in the army. I wound up in college. So I was taking business. I played football just to do something other than study. And I had fun playing football. And then I finally said, I can't, I can't keep doing this. So I, I actually went in the army, went in reserves and then active duty. And that's where I, I got my real life lessons and real education was in the military. And that's how I learned a lot of that, uh, of the, the value of the business I was learning, but also that, like you just said, it's not a magical box. It, it, it's easy to get in there and learn if you have an open mind to it. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, you know, having the ability to learn, to, to shut up and listen. You know, there is a problem sometimes with veterans get out and we've learned so much in our career. We sort of think we're soldiers and we self-identify that way. And we have a difficult time being adaptable enough not to be that in every situation. And it's not that you have to abandon your values, but you have to act according to, you know, live the, live the jungle that you're in. Right. And so I think it's, it's important that we understand that we got to adjust. And I think that, it leads to my next question. What company competencies make a military leader a good fit for leadership outside of the uniform, whether it be in business or as we see now, a lot of uh, former military leaders, uh, young NCOs up to officers are seeking positions of public trust. What competencies will make them be good fits in those positions? Yeah. And as you and I both know, there are a number of people who served who aren't good fits and I, I wouldn't vote for and I, you know, but <laughs> But the reality is the experience for most people does a number of things. One, it gives you self-discipline. It, it beats it into you. I still fold the underwear in my drawer because somebody made me do it 40 years ago and it seems like the right thing to do and I still do that. And there are a lot of things uh, that become good habits. They can be good habits of personal self-discipline, conduct, thinking about how you are responsible to the people you work for, those who follow you. And so a, a military leader, if they've had a good experience, and most have, they come with that self-confidence and that sense of responsibility and that, that willingness to stay focused. Hopefully, they come with the willingness to learn as well, because most of us jumped in different things in the military and had to learn as, as we went. The military is just a big learning machine because everybody comes in not knowing how to be a soldier and has to be taught from square one. So I think those are, are the big things. Um, we will come into civilian experiences not knowing the nuances of finance or production, but those are all learnable. And values, I think if you, if you have those 
of integrity and trustworthy, all those things, they actually are the bedrock you can build everything else on. Exactly. That's a perfect, perfect way of saying that. Uh, your group speaks of uh, the team of teams approach. Can you explain that a little bit to the audience? Sure. You know, we've all been on a team where we've, we're very proud of it. Maybe a sports team, maybe a church group, maybe a family. And you're really proud to be in that team. You can finish each other's sentences. You completely trust them. And you kind of don't trust people who aren't on that team. In, in the book, Team of Teams, we quote a, a SEAL that I know who said, there's a point at which everyone else sucks. And what he means is everyone who's not in my inner circle is not somebody I trust. And, and we're probably all guilty of that. So the danger is you get in this team, you're cohesive, you're proud, you want to be part of that team and you want to be a little dismissive of every other team. And then you get a bigger team and you suddenly realize that in a military unit, the different parts of an organization have got to work together. If you blow that up to bigger scale, the different military services got to work together. If you blow it up again, allied forces have got to work together. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And yet, if you hang so much on your tribalism, the fact that I am a whatever I call myself in my tribe in the military, that, that makes it hard. You're at siloed and you have these artificial walls which grow up and are, are really powerful. And I don't know how many times I've seen organizations not be able to work together. I saw it in the military, in the government, uh, in NATO, and then in, in civilian business, same way. HR doesn't like marketing, who doesn't like the production people. Not because there's a good reason not to like them, but it's because they ain't us. And so how do we create uh, organizations where the team of teams approach says that you've got to be able to scale to a certain degree, the trust and the ability to work together that we enjoy at small organization level. Definitely. Uh, my first uh, real job outside the military, my grown up job, I called it. I worked for the Mission Continues, a veteran nonprofit out of St. Louis. And like, just like you were saying, the marketing, uh, HR, no one liked each other because we didn't know what each other did. And uh, like we were uh, mentoring veterans, uh, they were trying to, the, of course, the finance people were in charge of fundraising and as well as paying the bills and such. So they did their little area, they were like their little foxhole, we were in our foxhole. And it started to feel like it was a, a game against each other, even though we were all on the same team. And it, it just wasn't a really good feeling. So when I left there, I had a, I was able to breathe easy as I left there to go to another organization. And I'm sure a lot of people have that same feeling going through uh, things like that in the, the corporate or nonprofit world. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I went out and spoke at one of your galas one year in St. Louis and uh, extraordinary organization, but even the best organizations, there's a tendency to break into these small groups where your most trusted comrades are and it, it can make it much harder to get the, the big job done. Right. And I, I never thought I'd see it, but I've seen it from the inside out. And I, I guess I learned valuable lessons. That's my first lessons in the 
real world, I guess, after wearing a, the uniform for so long, that was my first lessons moving into my new job with a, my eyes a little wider open and ears open to, to listen to everyone's ideas and beliefs and try to bring them all together. What do you tell young people now, people who haven't had that life journey, if they're 18, how do you explain this to them? You got to try to tell them not to put walls up around you or your, your team, like we spoke, your tribe, but you have to be open to letting new ideas in. If you don't let those new ideas in, you're just going to keep going down that same path, that same aperture straight towards that wall. And at one point you're going to crash into the wall. I believe that as a young uh, person coming out of high school, eight, 17, 18 years old, their, their eyes are wide open at that point, but they also like to go for comfort. Like most uh, people in America do, they go for that comfort zone and try to stay focused in that comfort area. You got to go outside that little realm of comfort and learn what others are doing and see how that can be incorporated into your overall goal to move forward. And I think that's the best way to move. Yeah. Do you find this generation, young people different from ours? Or you, you know, I'm from one, you're from another, and then there's another one here now. Well, my daughter's in this new generation. She's uh, 26 now. And uh, sometimes I'm speaking to her and I don't know what, what we're talking about, but it's, it's like a different, different language, but I think they have the same aspirations, same dreams, but a different approach to it. Whereas like our parents would look at us the same way. What are you thinking? Why would you, why would you try that when I told you this is the way to do it? But if we don't keep trying to change things as we move forward, yeah, there's, there's game plans on what works, but you still have to try different things to try to make things work better. And I think that's what we're, we keep seeing with each generation. Do you find as you get older, you are your first ref reflexive action is to be adverse to change? Uh, not, I'm not so adverse to change. I see a lot of my peers are. I try to absorb what the change is and see what I can do within that change. Uh, like uh, with us, me and you both, are, our generation growing up, we didn't have the, the whole computer world and all that stuff. Like we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now. And when all this came about, uh, I guess in the early part of the global war on terrorism, I guess when the internet really blew up and yet Facebook and all the social media and stuff, learning to use that as a tool and not as a, a hindrance was a little harder. And uh, now I, with my podcast and uh, with my book that just came out, I use it as a tool to try to get the word out about that and also voice other uh, ideas about veterans causes that I have. So I don't think many changes I'm adverse to. I just, it takes, now as I get older, it takes a little while to get used to it or get the feel of it, I'd like to say. <laughs> Yeah, well, one of the things I see is things as tragic as veteran suicide, but also just veteran issues, because you come out of a cohesive organization, then you're spread back out across the United States in small towns and all, and, and you can feel pretty alone. And the ability to leverage this kind of technology to reduce that is pretty powerful. Yeah, it's, it's a, I, I'm thankful for that part of this tool. Uh, like you said, there's some of our buddies that they really went home to places like in Northern Iowa or North Dakota, where there's not much there. And this is their only link to the outside world, really. So if you can get them on a, a Zoom call or just a chat, hey, are you doing the right, dude? Yeah, all right. Let's keep in touch so that we don't wind up in that darkness or that spiral. Yeah, I, I used to think about people would go home and I'd go home and I had my family and my I have one son and my wife. And so it was great every time I went home. But I used to write letters to the families of the fallen when I was commanding in Afghanistan and before. And I remember several times in Afghanistan, I wrote letters to two different parents at different locations because they were 
part, both of them in prison. Oh, wow. And then I thought about that service member was dead, but had they not been, imagine your, your homecoming and you go home to a, a situation that hard. Yeah, it's just a very cold and empty uh, welcome home, really. And yeah, wow, yeah, that's a that would be a horrible way to come home, with the relief that you made it home, and then really have nothing to be joyous about. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's a. That's it's a challenge. <laughs> yes. So you've wrote uh, four books now, I believe, and uh, your newest one is called Risk: A User's Guide. Uh, what is your motivation as you write these books? Is it to get the word out to help others uh, learn from your lessons or is it something else? Yeah, I'm really scratching itches of my own. I got out of the service and I was asked to write my memoirs and I said, no, I don't want to write anything. And they said, well, we'll pay you for it. And I said, okay. So I wrote <laughs> my memoirs and I spent two and a half years and it turned out to be this journey where I learned a lot about my life that I hadn't realized because we did all these interviews. I had a young man working with me we did interviews and research and, and I had this view of my life and my experiences. And when you do a lot of research, you find that I only knew part of what was going on at any given moment. And so it was pretty open, eye-opening. So we finished that. But when we finished that, it turned out that the most interesting lesson from my life in terms of military things was what we then reflected in Team of Teams. We said, what did we learn in that transformational experience? So we wrote a second book, Team of Teams. And then I got to the point, well, it, it wasn't as scary to write books. And I said, we don't, I don't understand leadership. I spent a whole life studying leadership and I don't understand it. So I'm going to study it. And I got with some friends and we, we spent two years studying leadership just generally. And we wrote this book, Leaders, Myth and Reality, and found out that leadership's very different from the stereotypical way we think about it. The person on the statue is perfect and all of us aren't. Um, and so we came away with a very different view of that and, and very, for me, instructive. And then this last one, risk, it was because I'd been taught risk in the military. We had matrices and you remember how to deal with it. But I never saw us actually be very successful with that. We either didn't use it, we just pulled it out of thin air, or that didn't work. And so I said, well, if risk is this very well understood science, but we always screw it up, let's study it and let's see what, why is that the case. And that was the idea of risk a user's guide. And of course, the title is meant to be a little bit provocative because everybody uses risk, whether they want to or not, you deal with it. Yeah. And so what, what we concluded was the biggest risk in our lives is actually us. It's not all the boogeyman out there waiting to get us. It's us. It's the fact that we don't do the things to make ourselves or organizations resilient enough in the face of risk, because we'll never be able to avoid all the risk or even predict it very well. But we can make ourselves a lot stronger. Definitely. I'm glad you brought up the matrix that we had to do for ranges or whatever in the military. I mean, it was always good. It looked awesome on paper. But like you said, it really didn't mean anything because nothing really went along those lines when you started to, once you kick in the door, it all changes once that you, that first door opens, the first bullet comes out of range. Risk is a totally different risk at that point. And uh, I think every day we get out into our vehicle and try to drive, that's a risk. And if you don't contemplate the third order effect of that, you have to understand what's going to happen if you don't hit the right pedal or you panic when someone does something in front of you. And that, that's, that's perfect. And I think a lot of people get a lot of use out of that book right there. 
Yeah. I mean, you could take so many things in our lives. It's perspective too. Sometimes we have life and we say, okay, what if I cheat on my taxes? Am I going to get caught? I don't make a lot of money. So I, I do a little thing and I cheat on my taxes and I don't. But your kid watches you fill out your taxes or you talk to your spouse about it and go, hey, you know, I, how clever am I? I did this. And they listen. And so there wasn't a great risk that you're going to get caught. And if you did, it wouldn't be big. But your, your kid learned something that you didn't want them to learn. Suddenly they have a different view of you and they have a different view of what values ought to be. And so the real risk lies in those sometimes separate things that are much more fundamental in life. Definitely. And now you just made that your child, like you said, they look at you differently, but they're also going to look for the easier way out of stuff as they move forward in life. And that's what we, we need to stop that along all lines right now. And a lot of that's happening in our country right now. Yeah. I think uh, good leaders out there should be able to put their foot down and maybe put their thumb on the pulse and maybe help it out. <laughs> we'll see though. <laughs> and not, not be shy to do that. I right. mean, not be... And you don't, you know, they say, let he is without sin cast the first stone. Well, none of us are without sin. Right. So we shouldn't all, the fact that we have all made mistakes, and we've all got things in our lives that we would rather not have on the nightly news. Yes. You know, but the reality is that shouldn't cow us into silence. We should still say there are values that we and our society should reflect. Exactly. And uh, I think one of your quotes is a, uh lead like you want to be on the right side of history you got to make those decisions so you're not on the nightly news for the wrong reason you're on the nightly news for the correct reason and doing the right things and pushing the next generation to greatness the standard i use now i've got these three granddaughters <laughs> seven five and two and they live next door to me so oh, wow. i see them every day and uh, i think about whatever they hear or read about me later i want them to be proud of that I don't want them to ever have to go, well, granddaddy was really not such a good guy after all. Now people all write bad things about me, but, but I don't, the bad things, I don't want them to be true. Right. You know, I want the things that they know are true to be things that they can take pride in. And that's very important. And it, it's a good reminder, you know, it's not just doing things because I, I'm a good guy. And hopefully I, I will remember that all of us do. But it's also a standard. It, it puts a little rigor into it. Definitely. And especially having the three of them next door. And I mean, that's almost a full-time job if, if they're coming over every day for you to stay on your toes and one, not get hurt playing with them and two, <laughs> teaching the right things. So, so, you know, as you know, we're both not uh, young and nimble anymore. So having three of them that young can really hurt you a little bit after a while. <laughs> yeah, they're little monsters. You know, yes. they'll, they'll wear you down. <laughs> yes, they will. And that time's good with them. So. Uh, if you can give advice to that young lieutenant coming out or that young man coming into business, what would you give them right now? Yeah, um, I, I think the biggest thing is they're going to make mistakes. They're going to they're going to come out. They're going to get in the job and they're going to make mistakes. And that shouldn't be the new standard. You know, if you make a mistake and get it wrong, you shouldn't let that be the standard. You should learn from it and say, OK, I'm going to do better tomorrow. You know, even when I got very senior uh, and I was a four star, I would deal with, I don't know, a couple hundred people a day. Many people, it was the only time they ever met a young soldier, the only time they ever met a general officer. 
And they were going to call or write home that night and tell their spouse or family about it. I met General X and dot, 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 fill in the blank, whether I was a jerk or whether I wasn't and that sort of thing. And, you know, of those 200 interactions, you may get 185 right, right. but you get some wrong where you're not as patient, you're not as good a leader, there's something you get wrong. And the key thing is, nobody's going to call you on it. You got to call yourself on it. You got at the end of that night go, I did some things today, which weren't as good as I should do that. And you got to just look yourself in the mirror tomorrow, I'm going to try to do better. And you'll never be perfect. But the day you start saying, well, you know, if I'm good, most of the time, I, that's fine. And you, you allow that standard, you stop making yourself the person that you really ought to be. That's 100% correct right there. Thanks for sharing that. And again, thanks for taking your time to come on uh, the Misfit Nation, Stan. And uh, how does someone get in contact with you to maybe just chat with you or have you come talk to their corporation? Absolutely. The easiest way is through my company, mccrystalgroup.com. Go right on our website. They can get right to me. They can get to our, our company. I can do all of that kinds of things. And Rich, thanks so much for all you've done, but also for having me on today. No problem. Thank you and have a good night. Take care. You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Fit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in any industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story with the world. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. Because we are Fit Nation. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.